Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, a podcast for horse lovers everywhere. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and pay my respects to their ancestors, past and present. And I'd also like to extend this to you. This podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. This land I live on is Waka Waka and Turbul country. In episode 14, I speak with Fiona Darrock Speedy from Dancing with Horses. Fiona spent her early life in northwestern Queensland, where her sense of freedom and adventure was nurtured, and horses and relaxed baby boomer parents were the facilitators of that freedom. On moving to Brisbane, she began dancing lessons and became an instructor, but it was the time that she found a true Latin dance teacher that her life with dancing changed for good. In time, Fiona decided that dancing, horses and leadership, which she was teaching in the corporate world, were too good a mix to not explore. So began her life creating Dancing with Horses. When I speak to people about Dancing with Horses, they either feel excited and curious or they squirm in their seat. It's something that can be a really incredible mirror to your behaviours when it comes to your leadership styles. Once again, we find that horses are here to give us so much in their gentle and non-judgmental way. I wonder how this will make you feel. Here is Fiona. Fiona, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. Fiona, first of all, I'd love to hear a little bit about what it is that you do. Yes, well, it sounds a little bit crazy when you um, you see the title Dancing with Horses and the, probably the most common question I get is, what on earth do dancing horses and leadership have in common? So I run leadership transformation workshops for leaders or supervisors, anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about themselves and who either likes an outdoor setting, uh, wants to actually experience it and do something practical, or even those people who are sick of PowerPoints and theory-based workshops. And I run people through one and two-day workshops where we work with dance movements, so we actually use our body a lot, and also, of course, our wonderful equine facilitators to help us learn about ourselves and how we communicate and how that can be um, transferred to working with people and trying to improve our trust, rapport and all those elements that go into a wonderful leadership, human relationship as well. I'm so excited to hear more about that because the more and more uh, people that I interview for this podcast, the more and more we come to the conclusion that horses are here to teach us so much and they've been waiting a long time for us to listen. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think that we're just going to prove that theory once more today. So, Fiona, first of all, I'd like to hear a lot more about you. Did you grow up with horses? Where did your journey begin with horses? I grew up initially in Perth on the beach where I had no access to a horse apart from one aunt who had a very old horse and, um, and I'll never forget her letting me sit on him one day. But I've always been obsessed. I had every horse book you can imagine and I have to say all of the books from the Silver Brumby series to you know, really way out ones, all of the ones that I loved were the ones where there was this magical bond between usually girl, of course, but human and horse that didn't need reins. It didn't need control. It was a voluntary, beautiful partnership where they just understood each other and they were best friends. 
And what do you think it is about that that you were searching for? What do you think is the key to that relationship? I think every kid um, or every person really, every human is always searching for that feeling of being understood and accepted without judgment. Mm. And I think that when you think or or imagine, dream, um, I'm a big sci-fi and fantasy reader as well, so anything that takes me away from everyday life, from telepathic dragons and flying with them, you know, there's always something magical about it. But the horse, there's something symbolic about the horse that represents freedom to us when we watch them run and move there is such power and beauty but freedom in the way they move Mm. um, that we I think we've lost we don't move as much anymore and and I guess that's a dance teacher coming out of me a little bit but um, especially our Australian culture and a lot of our western cultures we don't have that freedom of movement we're incredibly self-conscious when we move Mm. and when you think of that horse human bond and when I imagine I still liberty and um, bridleless riding I mean I still dream about you know my horse running up to me in the paddock which he does but then just jumping on his back and we just go with nothing on and just have adventures and just have fun and and just totally accept and enjoy each other wonderful and I think there's something that still captures my my heart and my soul. Mm, that it's the the two words that really stand out for me there are power and freedom. That's what I've always seen it as as well. Yes. Watching people with horses who have that true connection, it's like power in that deep connection and the freedom to just run together. Yes. Yes. It's beautiful. Yes. So you sat on your auntie's horse. You read all of these books. What came next in your life? My dad's parents passed away. And they were Scottish. They came out in the Ten Palm Deal to Perth. And as a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to get away from that that sort of environment, my parents decided to move up to my mum's parents' property in far north Queensland, so about three hours west of Cairns. So here I was, a city kid by the beach going, and I ended up in at the beginning of high school going to, we are talking very rural, as in a school bus, nothing else around, and no beach, no movies, just nothing we were bribed with my brother was told he could have a dog finally and I was told I could have a horse because they had 40 acres oh nice that's good that's fair it was fair it was fair smart parents I wouldn't have swapped it for anything I um, feel I was very lucky I looked at the country kids who used to talk about driving to going to Cairns and being scared of lifts and and escalators and I used to, of course, roll my eyes and think how superior I was as a child. But I actually now am incredibly grateful for the country experience it gave me and the down-to-earth practicality that you get. And, of course, I live on yeah. acres now, so I certainly um, came back to my roots with it. But my horse, it was um, instead of going, and I think so many people discover this, instead of going for the practical, really well-trained child's horse, because I was such a novice, I had dreams and fantasies and that was it, we ended up going for, I fell in love with a foal and the mare just happened to come along with her. And I found out later this mare was renowned for bucking and they couldn't train it out of it. Well, they would have um, beaten it out of it, let's face it, back in those days. Mm. I just remember the first morning I went out, I was so excited. I had a saddle blanket. I had a borrowed saddle and I walked up to her with this saddle blanket. Oh, no, I couldn't even catch her. That's right. I went out to catch her and, of course, I presented the halter for her, you know, here, put your head in it. And her being a, a canny, a canny young mare who didn't like people took 
took the bread out of my hand, which I offered so nicely, and then promptly ran away. What kind of horse was she? She was a 13-hand Arab cross something. Ah, beautiful. Yeah, Arab. Nice and flighty and hot for your first horse. Well done. Absolutely. Her name was Peg, which I promptly changed to Pegasus because I thought that was so much more romantic. I I ran back to mum crying, saying, Mum, I can't catch her. Mum, of course, knew a little bit more, being a country girl herself about horses and, and did the whole hide the rope behind the back and then slip the arm carefully over the neck with the rope. But, yes, we had many adventures. I had no saddle. She used to shy every two metres and I slipped and fell off and then she'd gallop home. <laughs> but talking about freedom in the end, and I don't know, I often look back with a lot of shame on my relationship with what I know and believe now that I had. But I used to ride bareback for hours. Back in those days, there was hardly any fences and I would just escape for a whole day and just go riding country. Of course, there was no mobiles. I was incredibly lucky. My parents or my mum seemed to understand my need to escape. And I don't know how she did it, to be honest, because I would leave at like 5am in the morning and come back before dark. But in a 360-degree area, you'd have no idea. There was mining there. There was really, there's a lot of, you know, drugs in that area. It wasn't a, a nice area. And they just let me roam. And sometimes if I fell off, I never hurt myself. My mare would never let me catch her. She'd run home and I'd be walking home and mum and dad would just have this horse gallop up the driveway, riderless, going, oh, I hope Fiona's all right and eventually she'll come home. Wow. That's that's a real testament to the baby boomer generation though, isn't it? Because that's the childhood I grew up with too. It was like, well, they're gone and they'll be back when it's dark. Yep. And in this day and age, you know, the baby boomers get a bit of a, they were called the checkbook parenting generation, but boy, we had some freedom. And um, I often look at my kids now and I think, oh, I actually feel a bit sorry for you. Whilst you've got the connection and you, the world really is your oyster, literally, because if you're so connected to it, you just don't get to do the kind of risk-taking adventure behavior that we got to do when we were kids. I agree. And you have to learn how to get out of it. Like there was a lot of tin mining around the area. And I, when I used to ride that mare initially, Peggy, her foal, who I fell in love with, um, who was a Connemara cross, um, would come with us, just roam with us, of course. It never occurred to me not to. And um, mm. I remember getting stuck in the, the quicksand of the, the tin mines because you'd be riding across it and suddenly you'd break the crust and you'd be having to try and pull the horse out and the foal would be there and, and, you know, you'd finally manage it and then you'd sit down going, God, that was close. Did you ever mention it to your parents? No. (laughs) Um, But you just, yeah. Yeah, we learnt life skills. We learnt incredible life skills. We really did. So she taught me so much because she knew nothing. Um, She never bucked on me once, by the way. I don't, I, um, when I heard later about the bucking, I, something fixed it in her or, well, I don't know what it was, but she, she bolted all the time. She bolted, she reared, she had one pace, which was a gallop. Um, and I eventually tried to take it to Pony Club. There's a little local pony club there called the Wild River Pony Club after the Wild River that flowed near us. And um, there I taught her the only jumping we could do was the six bar because it was in a straight line and you started and then you gave her the reins. And by the time she finished, everyone was holding their breath because she never clicked anything, but she was at a flat gallop. <laughs> And um, <laughs> in a straight line, set her up, close your eyes and go, 
as um, she jumped over it. But um, never did dressage except for once, and it was bareback, and I remember trying to do a rising trot bareback. <laughs> <laughs> How did you go? Oh, they complimented me on my rising trot, but considering she cantered over the um, the the lines of the dressage arena and I was constantly calling out, where do I go next? 80K in a walk. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I can't say I ever had a pony club career. Great. Certainly not a dressage career. That's wonderful. So after Pegasus, what yes. came next in your world? You finished school? Finished school. So I um, I started her foal at um, – Two, I remember this is one of those shame moments when you look back because I don't believe in starting horses now based on the research until they're four or five. Mm. And this poor little foal was so skinny, like we barely fed our horses. We didn't know any better and everyone just let them eat whatever was in a paddock and that was about it. And there's a photograph of this poor little foal at two and as soon as she turned two, she'd been following me around like a baby all, you know, all her life. So um, I promptly just jumped on her back popped a a bridle in her mouth and was like, right, let's go for a ride. I didn't know any different about, I didn't even think about the fact she didn't understand what the bit might be, what left and right, what stop might be, what legs might be. Never occurred to me. Yeah. So you were riding more from feel then anyway, weren't you? And I guess you would have been relying on the connection of that you had with the foal and the communication that you already had with her to, Yep. Get you where you needed to it go. It occurred to me she wouldn't do what I wanted. <laughs> and yeah. Pretty much did. But uh, yeah. I, yeah, I left school. So left school. I went went to uni because uni was um, in Townsville, which was about five hours away. So I had to leave home to go to uni. And, and what did you study there? The first thing I actually applied for at uni was uh, performing arts. Ah. And um, they said you had to fit and majoring in dance. And they said you have to, you know, do an audition. And, because country Queensland, where I was, I didn't have access to dance lessons. So I danced as a kid in Perth like four times a week. But I only had horses when I was in country. So here I did apply anyway, thinking, because I kept on stretching and doing some exercises in my head, I danced, that I'd still be good enough to maybe audition and go to performing arts at uni. And um, it was one of those moments where mum said I should have been really proud that I had the courage to try it. Definitely. I remember being incredibly, I felt embarrassed and humiliated because I remember turning up to this audition and they said, so you're the girl, I was, what, 17, I think, you're the girl who hasn't danced since she was 11. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. And I was in borrowed shoes and leotards and stockings. And we did some basic exercises and a warm-up and I sort of kept up. And then I remember them saying, and now we're going to play a piece of music and you've got 10 minutes to come up with a, a little impromptu routine that you're going to, to do for everyone. And I remember watching, you know, the girls do it and, I, and that's when I was like, who am I fooling? This is just ridiculous. I don't have the training or technique for this anymore. And when it was my turn, I politely declined and they were nice enough to understand why and not to make a big deal of it so what did you do next I did a bachelor of arts so I just picked subjects that I liked and I really loved French so I did French I really liked history so I did modern history and then I hadn't thought that far ahead I just wanted to I wanted to leave the country town to be honest um, I just wanted to leave the country town and I really liked learning and I ended up finding myself with a BA majoring in French and Southeast Asian politics fantastic and then I thought that's not going to really get me anywhere. So a park opened, it was called Dundee Park, mm-hmm. and it had lots of crocodiles. 
as well as other Australian animals. And my parents got a job managing it and tour guiding there. So I used to tour guide in my holiday breaks. And I thought, this isn't a bad gig. I can do this. So I decided to do a graduate diploma of tourism at uni. So I threw that in and picked up a little bit of Japanese as well and um, graduated and then started working at the park full time. But sadly, the recession then hit, the big recession in the um, early 90s. Mm. And the park closed and was sold off. And the recession, there wasn't many jobs, so I moved to Brisbane. Mm-hmm. And the only job I could get was a ballroom dance teacher. Brilliant. So dancing definitely was also something that was really strong as a, a passion and a desire, again, for freedom. When you move your body in a unconscious way that represents the feelings you have inside, normally to music, there is, like riding, a beautiful, or working with horses, a beautiful freedom and a feeling that comes over you and your body. Mm, beautiful. So you taught ballroom dancing. Yeah, yeah, so they trained us up and taught us to be instructors, and I did that for four years. And it got you back into that movement and feel. Was it great to be dancing again? It was great to be dancing, but I, re- I really struggled with, um, that feel. I I was a really good teacher. I am um, a visual learner, so I could see a step and do it once or twice, and I would have the body memory to be able to do it. I picked up steps incredibly quickly. I found out I didn't think it was anything special, but compared to others, I you know only needed to be shown something once or twice, and I could do it. I had a girlfriend there who's still a good friend of mine. She's opened her own dance studio now um, for herself, for a dance studio, who's an ex-ballet dancer who looks like a dancer. Mm. And I compared myself um, negatively to her all the time because she looked like such a beautiful dancer and she had that expression and movement and fluidity, I guess, that in my head is what I felt when I imagined myself dancing. But I know when I saw videos and when I did it, it either I was very self-conscious so it didn't translate or the moments where I thought it felt beautiful to me when I saw it on video, it didn't look the way it felt, which was really disappointing. Um, And lots of people always said to me, let go, you're so controlled, just let go. It doesn't look like you're having fun. Even my parents came down and watched my, because I did my professional goal, and they said, it doesn't look like you enjoy it. I was so taken aback because the feeling inside was wonderful, but I I didn't show it. Ah, so there was a disconnect. There was an absolute disconnect. And most of it was this self-consciousness that didn't allow me to um, show what I was feeling. Mm. I left dancing for a little bit. I thought I needed to get a real job, get some money. (laughs) Yeah. And then I found a friend of mine who'd been boring with me It said, there's this um, Brazilian guy who's come over from Brazil and he started some classes in this hall and it's fascinating. You should come along. It's really different. And um, I went along and I looked and I was like, I don't get it. They call that samba, but it's nothing like the samba I've done in ballroom and the music's different and there's no structure and I think I'd look really gumby. I was still really self-conscious and I thought, no, nah, it doesn't do anything for me. And I left it and then a couple of years later, the guy's name was Tassizio and he now he runs uh, Rio Rhythmics, which is one of Australia's largest dance schools. He was the first um, Brazilian to come over and really do and introduce Australia to Brazilian authentic um, traditional culture, Latin mm-hmm. culture. 
he'd become a bit more structured and everything. There was classes and structure and, and an actual program. And I went along and this time I loved it. I could see the origins of all the ballroom dances that I'd learnt and suddenly I could actually feel it as well. In ballroom, we don't look at each other. It's um, If you think about the British tradition, the Brits took a lot of the, the authentic Latin dances and, and created the, the structure to be able to do competitive dancing. And the actual Latin dances in ballroom have no body contact. You're actually quite separate. Mm. Even though you have hip movement and everything, you're, you're very separate. Yeah. And the smooth dances, the waltz and the foxtrot, which aren't very sensuous or, or, or sexual at all, really, they... Um, they have full body contact, but you look away from each other. You, you basically turn your other cheek, which sounds very British. It does. So you don't look at each other. So there's no actual eye contact. You, you really go into your own space to try and enjoy it. And you're obviously with a partner, but there's no eye contact. For the Brazilian dancers, the first thing they say to you, or I was told was, it's so rude that you don't look at your partner. And I was really taken aback because I didn't, think about it that was just the way I'd been trained and I found it completely okay to put my body up against a stranger and dance with them but to actually even have some gap and look them in the eye I found incredibly personal and intimate yes the windows to the soul yes absolutely and there's so much research now that backs up the neuroscience behind that for trust Mm. and rapport and all those things but once I've discovered the feeling of that connection when you look at someone for the three minutes you're dancing with them, whether you are quite close in in physical contact or not, you share those moments. You share the joys, you share the confusion, you share the frowns when something doesn't work, but you share it. And that absolutely got me hooked. And they talked a lot about the Brazilian culture because he's very, Tassiso is very passionate about bringing a community feel. It's not just about teaching Latin dance. And I ended up being um, asked to instruct there. And I think I was pretty much five, six days a week at Rio Rhythmics for about 10 years. Whether I was a student just being obsessed with classes, student supporting, which is sort of a a, a more advanced student helping out in classes or um, teaching casually. And it completely transformed my life. The way they talk about connection, how you move, watching how people's confidence changes, how their social skills change, how their their approach to life by not having to be a perfectionist, that they had to let go control. They had to trust another person because it doesn't work just with one person. There were so many aspects of this thing called Latin dance that I couldn't believe the differences it made in people's lives. So empowering. It was. It was really empowering. I only left there. My um, my parents ended up, mum was diagnosed with secondary breast cancer and um, was told she didn't have long to live. So they managed to sell up and come down. But I stopped dancing um, in that time because I was needing to take care of them. Yeah. And just at the time that sort of finished, someone said to me, hey, you know, they've started some salsa classes up in Boona, which is just a, a little town near Bow Desert. And I went along because it was, it was still fun to do some exercises to proper Latin music and it was a bit of fun watching it. And they found out I was a teacher and they said, hey, you wouldn't, would you be interested in keeping on doing some classes here? 
and I didn't have a partner to teach with, uh, which is always harder as a lady teaching because you normally have the, the leader. Mm. And yeah, started classes there and they liked it. So I, I Latin Nights was formed. So I still run the two classes, Latin Nights in Logan and Latin Nights in Bow Desert, two nights a week. And and there's lots of horse people, of course, out here. So there's lots of times when I was talking dancing and I was talking leading and following that I just translate that into horse terms. Mm. Talk about lightly and invitation and you can't force someone, you need to listen. It's a feeling of moving together is what you're after. And more and more it kept coming to me that there is such a, a synergy and a similarity between partner dancing and working with horses and my job for the last sort of 15 years had been in learning and development, teaching adults how to manage, lead, communicate, coaching them, learn all those things. And I found myself saying almost the same things in my leadership workshops. It all started to blend together. It all started to blend together and I never really spoke about it to anyone because it just sounded crazy. It just... um happened in my head and one day at work we had a lady from QUT come in and she was doing a storytelling workshop with us actually and I got chatting to her and um, she was asking me what I did and she was a very good listener and she drew out and I was I just was saying about this really weird sort of thing that I'd noticed and she goes you should do something you should write a paper you should do something with that and I'm like no I don't want to go back to study no that's too much hard work and she just kept on pushing it. She just planted this seed. And in the end, I thought, I'll oh, just have a look and see what's out there and, and what's on offer at the unis. And I sort of put a, an expression of interest in and they came back straight away. And next thing I knew, I found myself facing a panel of four people trying to explain to them why I thought that horses dancing and leadership might be a good doctoral research. Wonderful. And where was that? At QUT. That's fantastic. And, of course, they said yes. How could they not? They did. And I just remember being so stunned. I just remember thinking it was such a surreal experience to talk to these who I thought were, you know, incredibly intelligent academic people who actually seemed to listen to this crazy idea and then nod their head going, sure, we'll, because it's government funded, the research, mm. and going, sure, we think there's something in it. Come along onto our um, creative industries doctoral program. Isn't it great? I always love it when you think you're just kind of cruising along in life and you're just doing whatever's in front of you and little do you know that you've got the building blocks for what it is that you're meant to be doing and it just slowly, slowly gives you all the skills that you need and then all of a sudden it clicks that you're meant to bring it all together. It's brilliant. Yeah. How did that go? Um, I'm just taking a break from it now. So I've done uh, two and a half years. I got made redundant. So all of my ethics applications based on being an employee of work and the position I held there was now also redundant. And I decided that redundancy was the universe speaking to me and giving me an incredible gift. Isn't it just? Yes. To say, you don't need to wait till you finished your doctorate and have some piece of paper to be able to do this. You can yeah. now. You don't have to prove it. Yes. Yeah, you don't have to academically prove it to know that it's true. Brilliant. So I decided to take um, a, a risk and start my own business, which I've called Dancing with Horses. 
Now, can we take one little step back because we, we've taken the dancing here. When you came to Brisbane, did you get horses again straight away when you no. moved to Bow Desert? No, I, um, I was in the city when I first moved to Brisbane. Um, yeah. I didn't get a, a property. I got married. I married a dance student at the um, Boreham Dance Studio and then we separated uh, very amicably uh, where I got the – we were going to build – well, my dream was to build – on a, a property we bought 10 acres out near Esk and have horses out there. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't end up being his dream. So in, in our separation, I got the property, mm-hmm. which wasn't worth very much, but I got the property. And um, in one of those knee-jerk reactions after getting divorced, the first thing I did was take myself on a continue trip of Europe and, um, and buy myself a horse. So, yeah, so I thought, okay, um, I'm going to get myself a horse. I, I don't have someone telling me no now and um, wondered why I had let someone tell me no, all of those things that happen. And my friend said, well, let's go and, and have a look. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to take my time though because the right horse is hard to find. And we checked out a couple and nothing really clicked. And then Annette said to me, the Laidley sales are on. Why don't we go there? And I was like, I'm hardly going to go to, and I remember my tone of voice was very similar. I'm hardly going to go there and buy a horse sight unseen with, you can't ride. It's just not going to happen. And she's like, okay. She said, but they also have horse equipment. So you can get yourself a saddle and a bridle and stuff cheap. So at least you've got something when you get your horse. And I'm like, okay. So we rocked on up, found out that the um, riding equipment was all at the end of the auction. So we had to wait for the whole auction to finish. And Annette kept on saying to me, Let, let's browse the stalls. And I'm like, nope, nope, not going there. Not going to be looking at horses. Nope, not going. Waited till after lunch. I resisted. And she looked and she said, oh, love it. Nope, not going. Not going to do it. Not going to do it. And uh, resisted till after lunch. And we'd been there since nine. By then, my bum was numb. And I was just like, all right, we're going for a walk. We wandered around. Annette and I had very different tastes in horses. So wandered around for a bit. And then suddenly I saw this chestnut bum. And I was like, oh, that's a bit nice. And the lady was work, was sort of saddling her up or something. She just had a stock horse, uh, stock saddle on. And she said, and Annette um, is very chatty. And she's like, oh, hello, you know, who's the horse? Tell me about it. You know, is she yours? Oh, yeah, she's a 13-year-old ex-race horse. Um, been doing stock work and been a broodmare for a bit. And it's just too dry out there. And the thoroughbreds don't, you know, handle it really well. So hoping to find her a good home. Yeah, she's lovely, blah, 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 pure, you know. And I'm just looking at her and there was just something about her. And sort of said, oh, how much are you hoping to get for her? Now, I was going to spend about $1,000 on a horse. This was mm. early 2000s. And she said, oh, about 600 And I remember walking away and saying to Annette, well, we'll see how she handles the, the arena and see what she's like ridden. You know, it's still it's a sight unseen. She said, and I'm not going over 600 <laughs> And yeah. we got back up in the stalls. And she just calmly walked around and trot and canted in the circle and looked really calm and relaxed. And I'd never bid in an auction before. <laughs> and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm trying to bid. And I got so confused with the, the speed of the auctioneer's speech. I kept on when he's going, and we've got this, and it's a 450, and it's a 450, and another bid. And I kept on looking at the auctioneer going, is that at me or, or not? And he kept on having to go, no, no, it's yours, or no, it's not yours. And I, I up it and it got to 600. And it was mine and it closed at 600. So I got her for 600 and then Annette and I looking at each other going, um, what do we do now? I don't have a horse load. I don't even have fencing on my property. 
Yeah, but it's like the quicksand, you know. That's <laughs> what the quicksand was about. You just got to figure it out. And we managed to find someone who would truck her to my property, to a friend's property at Esk, a neighbour who had some fencing. And I had previously said to me that in an emergency, they put a horse on there for me. So I got an ex racehorse. Um, Wonderful. Who, his name was Regal or Bushfinity was her official name. Her dad was forever Regal. And I looked at her and I thought, Regal is your name. And she's just, she was just a grandma. From the moment we got her at 13, which is not old, but at the time I thought it was, she could have been 23. She just had that been there, done that, calm, gentle feeling. She was not a typical thoroughbred. She did not want to go above a canter. I rode her on a buckle, a loose rein on a buckle, trot, canter. Found out she was a little bit injured, so she wasn't really forward moving anyway. Um, mm. She was very easy to move, but um, she, she wasn't reluctant to move. She was a joy to ride. And I just used to go riding on the weekends, um, work in Brisbane, and then go back to the, the property, which had a shed on it, and about it, that was about it, shed and a tank, and ride her. She floated initially. Our friends of mine had a float. They used to um, come out, and, and um, we tested her on a float. She walked straight on. That was all good. She seemed perfect. And then... As happened, and there's a bit of study around this happening as well, as she started to relax and let down and realising she was in a state of learned helplessness when I first got her, Mm. she started looking around and actually noticing and thinking. Suddenly the float was the scariest place ever and she never wanted to go on it. Suddenly any pressure on the pole, like if she moved her head when she was tied up and she felt pressure behind her head, was incredibly scary and she would just break every halter and lead rope, just rear and fall over backwards. And a lot of these issues kept coming up. And at this time Annette was in Chambers Flat, my friend Annette, and she said, I've heard of this guy called um, John Chatterton. And apparently he's supposed to be really good with... um, with thoroughbreds, she, Annette had a thoroughbred too who was a little bit too much for her and said, oh, I'm thinking about getting him out and having a look. And I was like, anything that can help because I've got no experience with this and I don't know how to help or fix it. And so we started our first foray into natural horsemanship, which was, you know, with the catchphrase at the time mm-hmm. and learnt a lot about how horses are trained through pressure and how that creates, you can force them and they will shut down, but they don't forget. Yeah. And the traumas, they don't forget and they will have flashbacks. Yeah, and they just, they lock it inside and they get on and they're so incredibly resilient. You know, the story you've got is such a testament to the quicker you train a horse to be compliant, the worse it's going to be in the long run. And racehorses. Yeah, any horse. There's nothing that I I will not ever believe. Yes, you can get a horse to be compliant in a really fast amount of time. Yep. Yep. Show me that horse in three years' time. Yep. When it's had a single owner, when it's had the time to relax, when it's actually feeling safe enough that it's able to let the trauma out, you show me that horse then, and I'll tell you whether you had whether that three days actually really did anything good for the horse, or if it just shoved it all down and taught it how to be resilient and moved on. Absolutely. Ugh. So Regal taught me so, so much. The main thing I realised that's, I guess, pertinent to my story is to have the blank slate to try and create the bond you want 
your easiest way to do it is a fold. Mm. And you can raise it and wean it and all of those things, start it to halter feet, all of those experiences you have control of yourself to try and introduce it the way you would like. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, I'll, um, I'll get Regal pregnant. Simple. She's a mare. These things should be really easy. <laughs> and I thought, well, my dream horse is a Palomino, an Arab Palomino, which, of course, mm-hmm. doesn't exist, not 100% Arab, but an Arab Palomino. And I found a, a, an Arab stud who was breeding coloured Arabians, part, part bred Arabians, and she had a, a lovely stallion out there called Aratan's Excalibur. So Regal was out there for like three months. She did not fall pregnant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the end, Leanne said to me, you know what? She said, why don't you just grab one of our existing foals? That way you don't have to wait 12 months. You already know it's alive and well and healthy. You know the sex. You, you know so much about it. I really wanted a filly. So she showed me a couple of fillies who were beautiful but would only make 14-2 and a very fine Egyptian-style Arabs. And I'm like 5, 10, 11 and fairly big-boned. So that wasn't going to work for me. And then she showed me this colt at two months old and his mum had just come up from Victoria and was separated from the herd and they looked terrible. They were in this round yard. They looked so dejected. He was in that molting foal colt stage. Mm. And she just said, you know, he'll be 15-something. He's a good crabbit Arab, so nice and stockier. Um, He should be a good colour. She better do anything with him. He's got good feet. You know, you'll do everything you want. I remember thinking, yep, I feel absolutely nothing looking at him, but logically you're right, it kind of makes sense. And so I said, yes, I'd do it. And at the same time I said I'd like to spend a little bit of time with him. So they popped me in the round jar with him and his mum outside. And I've got still got a photograph of it. And I sat down and my back was to him and I suddenly felt his whiskers on my hair or on my hat. I think I had a straw hat on. And he pulled the hat off and I looked up into his eyes. And then from that moment on, he was mine. I was oh, his. <laughs> beautiful. And that connection was made. When I think of freedom, Zook just loves to run. As an Arab, my partner's got himself a quarter horse foal and I didn't realise that they don't run. They just seem to, you know, stroll, plod. Well, his mum and his sisters and brothers, none of them seem to just run. Arabs just run. They just run circles yeah. as a foal. They just run and run and run and run and run. And I loved running with him. And I just clap and applaud when he ran because to me it was that freedom. You just watch it and it's such joy of movement and running. Yeah, the sound of the thundering hooves. Oh, and you see them. They love it. You can imagine the feel of their muscles moving and stretching and yeah. pushing themselves. It just... Oh, yeah, just magic. My stock horse can, um, Kiowa can do a 360 oh. on the spot. She can, she can get herself into this position and just flip herself around in the air and come back. And then she looks at me going, aren't I fabulous? I'm like, you are, my God, you yeah. are. It's yeah. beautiful. And, it, and so from the beginning, I just wanted that bond and relationship and, he um, and I also was like, you're going to love the float. I am not having floating issues with you because Regal still, we couldn't, even with all the work that we did, the trauma she had. I remember one day John managed to get her on. Um, he uses um, negative reinforcement. Mm-hmm. So it would be if you stand, you know, at the float, there's no pressure, but if you choose to move away from the float, there's pressure and then there's no pressure when you're in the right spot. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time she actually walked herself on the float, she stood there 
and and John's got a lovely, quite gentle energy, and he just stands there and lets them process and lets them choose. He doesn't lock them in. They can just stand there. She would have sweated buckets. Mm. She just stood there and trembled, all the obviously trauma just coming back in and the physical reaction, and I just bawled. I just looked at her just, I'm sorry, I can feel it now, Mm. looked at her and the physical reaction to what would have been emotional. I found out later that she never was a proper racehorse. She was banned from the track before she actually made any paid races. Apparently she was incredibly fast and they decided to fast track her training with some U-Butte trainer who said, I'll fast track it so, you know, you can get this baby on the racetrack quicker to earn you some money. Mm. And they put so much pressure on her to get go into the barriers that she flipped out enough that they ended up having to ban her from the racetrack. Good girl. Yes. So hence why she has issues with floats and crushes and stuff. Yeah. Um, and you can't walk behind her. She She's obviously been bum-roped heaps and pushed from behind. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and I just thought... My horse, Zook, who I named after my favourite Latin dance style, it's like a 3-4 beat dance, which to me just reminded me of the beautiful canter and it just, the rhythm of Zook and the movement when you dance it together, it's very much a hip dance together movement, just to me felt in my mind like the ridden canter. Mm. He loves the float, he self-loads. Beautiful. Um, Decided after a while of research that I really like the idea of bitless that going back for me and my personal choice of a relationship and a bond that I felt was established on trust and respect and mutual acceptance, I just want the best for both of us. I want both of us in the relationship to feel good and trusted and relaxed and safe and understood. It's such a constant learning journey and every time I sort of think that I'm in a place where I'm going, yeah, I'm pretty happy with our relationship and how it's working, someone will say, oh, have you heard of this person or I'll read something or see something and I'll go, oh, I have to reevaluate things a little bit now and think about it. And so you started dancing with horses. You decided you were made redundant and you decided yeah. that this is it, it's time. It is time. And I was lucky enough, I've been speaking to a couple of ladies who run a program called Hooked on Leadership. I contacted them and, and just asked some questions. I said, oh, we've just had a cancellation. Would you like to come onto one of our programs and have a look? And I came away feeling so inspired and self-belief. And the other thing is part of being made redundant, it was a surprise. And I'd been there six years. When I sort of communicated to the workplace um, that, you know, I was leaving and said, you know, thanks very much. If anyone wants to contact me, here's my personal email address. I was blown away by the people who contacted me saying what an impact my style of teaching and training had made on their lives. And any self-doubt, I've been struggling a little bit with mental health issues around depression and anxiety, and any doubts that I'd had around my competence, my capacity, my abilities to teach, make a difference, my belief in my own skill set could not exist in the flood of reviews, recommendations, comments. Mm. So January I started it. I've started with my one-day intro, which takes us through leadership theory, mostly experiential and embodied leadership. So leadership theory that's based on 
how your body moves. So a lot of it is nonverbal. So we talk about what the difference between managers and leaders are. What does leadership look like? What's the feeling you get from a good leader? How does your body, or what's the role of your body in communication? So it's not just the words. We look at some neuroscience around trust and the energetic, like it. there's a 10-meter energetic field around us that if you, when you meet someone for the first time, as you walk and cross that 10-meter boundary, your brain is already starting to look for hints and clues as to whether this person is a threat or this person is someone to be trusted. And most of those cues are in your energy and nonverbal language. And, of course, horses are the master having to survive and being a much higher, um, being a prey animal. They are the masters of those kinds of hints and nonverbal language. So we also use dance movements so that people are comfortable practising with a fellow human being first because for a lot of people in my audience, they're not horse people. So a horse is a very large, intimidating animal. And we look at dance movements around trust, and then there is a, a lovely flow that you create when you actually move together in sync that creates an energetic flow that I haven't met many people who can't feel it. It's hard to describe, but it, it does exist. Mm. And then we talk about the impacts of that. And then after lunch, we go down and meet the horses so that people can feel a bit more comfortable. And then we do one-on-one and there's some pair work with the horses just on the ground, usually just with a halter and lead rope. And we just work on leading, following and um, the definition around what partnership might look like and that trying to get that flow where you actually move and walk in sync. And in those workshops that you did, what was it that you saw? What changed in the people from the start to the finish of a one-day workshop? What did you see change in them? Their self-awareness of what they are feeling is transferred and communicated whether they want it to or not. So many comments I had from people were, wow, when I'm in a really bad mood or I'm really stressed, you know, I try not to put that on my staff. Mm -hmm. I'm realising now that they know anyway. And it's little things like there's a trust exercise we do where you stand opposite one another, not even touching, and you close your eyes and one person projects either trust or distrust and the other person is just asked at the end of maybe 30 seconds which one they think was projected at them what what did they experience and 95 percent of the time they get it right Mm. and you think what that means from not only a team perspective if you're having thoughts around distrust or you're feeling threatened and a lot of this happens without us even realizing it because we're so tuned to look for threats still that is going to impact how we are perceived and we know that words when it comes to a conflict of messages if we're feeling conflicted that words only impact seven percent of the actual message if there's a conflict between our body language tone of voice and words Mm. So if we're feeling distrust, if we're feeling threatened, if we're feeling unsure and we try and say, it's all okay, lovely to meet you or don't worry about a thing, it's not believed. It just goes straight through our subconscious filters and sits there and someone goes, oh, I just didn't feel right about that. Mm. So it's that understanding and connection that, and horses are a lovely teacher of mastering being in the present 
and they are so reflective of what we are are feeling if you're feeling uncertain if you're feeling scared if you're feeling like you need to um, prove something it's not usually something that's that attractive for the horse so they tend to stay away or try and leave it was seeing and hearing the difference even in their body language with people trying to stop and breathe noticing and observing the reaction of the horse or the other person and making minute self-corrections because that ability to be able to make a mistake, which is essential in learning, fail I call the first attempt in learning. That's not my acronym. I've read it, but I really like it. Nice. That ability to be able to go, that's not working because I'm watching and observing and I change my behaviour and I can see what happens when I change my behaviour. When we have theory-based leadership workshops, and I've run enough of them to know, we talk about case studies or scenarios and we talk about what we might have done or what would have happened. We don't actually get the opportunity to put ourselves in there and be confronted and is confronting with immediate, honest feedback about our behaviour and what we're projecting. But the gem of it is we're able to then make changes to see what happens when I change my behaviour and you get to see the results. And that's priceless. It's such a gift, isn't it? Such an incredible gift. All the years I did in therapy, I would stand there and I would watch the human and that moment where it drops into their body. As a holistic counsellor, we're trained that, you know, the mind is such a small part and you can transform the mind and you can give a concept, but unless they're getting it in their body, it won't shift. You know, it's when people embody something and they have the aha moment is when it actually drops into the body and then it transforms and they've actually got it. And that's the gift I saw horses give so much with that big external visual because they don't come with that threat they don't come with an agenda they don't come with the stories that we have they just come in the present moment and they just show you what you've got and it just enables people to transform in such a effective and fast way the speed at which people got things always amazed me and because um authentic leadership is as another um, concept that's so closely linked to the embodied leadership and one of the best quotes I read was I haven't looked at my research for a little bit I've actually forgotten who who quoted apologies but they said authenticity is not something you can say you have you cannot say I am authentic authenticity is something or a description that other people give to you so you, you can believe that you're being honest true to yourself as much as you want, but it's actually a perception that others give you and it's comprised of so many different minute aspects around your body. And as you said, what you're you're thinking or what your mind's doing subconscious or conscious that translates through to the body and the energetic field that we have. That authenticity to try and actually match or be aware of what I'm feeling and therefore what I'm projecting, to be able to be authentic with my communication is so vital in leadership, whether it's leadership of, of horses or, or humans or whatever it might be of yourself. And I find that using dancing first, and this is probably the crux of my research, is to say that we know working with horses and leadership is incredibly effective. There is so much research from both behavioural, neuroscience, everything from a therapy point of view to just behavioural. There's so much research as to why and how horses help humans learn. 
for me, adding the element of dance in first is it gives you horses don't really have, as you said, any agenda to help you. They don't know why you're going there. They don't know the instructions that their facilitator might be giving you to try with the, with the horse. So they're just going to respond very honestly in the moment mm. and often not in the way that you would like them to do. Yes. To have the humans, on the other hand, hear the instructions, have a rough idea of, of kind of what the outcome is and are much more inclined to help in a small intimate group. So you actually get a slightly safer, gentler introduction to your body language examples of trying to embody leadership because partner dancing is nonverbal as well. There's movements there that you're trying to communicate and you're trying to be aware of your body and movement and the other person and the leading and following because without leading, sorry, without following, we don't have leaders and followership is not something that's often discussed or, or um, talked about, but it is that invitation you can't force someone to follow you that invitation to say please come with me on this it's a, it's a partnership that i'd like to you to join me with and that slight help that a human will naturally try and want to give another human in that moment can give them i believe a slightly gentler um introduction into the concepts where they feel some wins they get an opportunity to talk uh verbally as well about the interaction and how it felt from both sides before you then take them down to the horses where they only get the one-sided verbal interaction and add the observations and then the pure behavioral response from the um, equine facilitator beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah it's um it's always fun to take voice out of it as well when you can't talk somebody into something. You can't use your brilliant brain to make something happen the way you can with humans because we can play a mind game with humans, but you can't play that with horses. You actually have to embody it. You actually have to be literally what it is that you're seeking before anything will happen. That's why I love it so much. And adding the music, because I, I use music, obviously, in the dance section, but having music, music helps bypass a lot of our conscious thoughts as well. It is so primitive. I mean, drums and drumming have been around for, for centuries and we're the first kind of music and noise that we use. So our bodies do have something locked deep down into our psyche around music and rhythm. Mm. So it does help bypass a lot of the conscious thoughts as well to be able to get that feeling of moving in sync yeah, it's something that has moved out of the, you know, in the last few centuries, I guess, isn't it? The the rites of passage, the the music, the tribal, mm. yeah, fantastic. Oh, it's all it's all great. It's all so great. And Fiona, if people would like to connect with you, how do we find you? Um, there's a few different options. I have a, a website which is dancingwithhorses.com.au. More than welcome, obviously, to have a look on the website. Also, I have a Facebook page, Dancing with Horses Facebook page, which again has got a, a message function. You can private message me and have a look at the different options. Also, there's a common thing going here, Dancing with Horses One at yahoo.com. So I have an email address, and I'm also more than happy to take uh, phone calls from people 0408 I'm kind of passionate about it, as you might have noticed, and love to speak to anyone. Um, however, they, they're happy to have a chat to me or contact. 
Wonderful. And you're based around the Brisbane area. What about... Yeah, what about other parts of Australia? Are you able to take this on the road? It's not totally out of the question. At the moment, I'm just finessing based on on feedback and my observations, the workshops. I would need some really good horses that I have a, a connection and understanding with because I use my own at the moment. But otherwise, it's not out of the, the ballpark. But at the moment, I'm concentrating on working on these horses here in the scenic room area. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Probably the biggest thing is if it seems crazy and thought of it makes you feel uncomfortable and not in a bad uncomfortable way but a discomfort way, generally that's your place of learning or where you need to sit for a while, so give it a go. Oh, that's brilliant. I've done a lot of workshops in my life, horses, not horses, counselling, family constellations, and I would turn up and the person who was the most bejiggity in their chair, Mm -hmm. they were up for the biggest transformation that day and I was so excited for them. And the days where I'd get lost on the drive there and I'd turn up in a sweat and I wouldn't know what was going on, it's like, oh, God, it's my turn today. So I'm going to back that one a 1,000%. They are the biggest transformational days that I've ever had. So, um, yeah, if it makes you squirm in your seat, jump in. (laughs) Yep. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Fiona. On behalf of um, myself and everything I do here at Come Along for the Ride, you're exactly the type of person that I love to speak to and promote for everything that you're doing, bringing awareness of how incredible horses are to us as humans. So thank you for what you do and thank you for what you do for horses. My pleasure and thank you very much to spending the time to have a chat with me and thanks to your listeners who also helped make it happen. Yeah, and uh, I'll be seeing you at a dancing workshop sometime soon. (laughs) I hope so. If you'd like to get in touch with Fiona and dance with her beautiful horses, then either go to the links in the show notes or you can go to the blog on my website where you can also see photos of Fiona, her horses and her workshops. When you get a moment, you might also like to have a listen to earlier episodes in the series, like Donna Anderson from One Horse Life Australia, where she talks about calmness and patience with horses. It's beautiful. I'm on a mission to make the world a better place for horses. This is a big mission with a wonderful message, and it needs your help. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses, please engage with me somehow. You can leave a review on iTunes or Facebook, share or comment on social media posts, or tell your friends about the podcast. You'll find all the links to our social media on our website, comealongfortheride.com.au. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you'll find me on LinkedIn. If your friends don't know how to podcast, just send them to my website and tell them to hit play. It's the most user-friendly way to listen for anyone you know who might be resistant to technology but would love to listen. I would love it if you would get in touch and say hi. Let me know who you would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. I have some really wonderful people lined up to speak to, but this is your show as much as mine. So please, if there's anyone you'd like to hear from, get in touch via the website or social media. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.